thanks for stopping in at Down the Road Show. On this episode, we're going to celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day with my friend and filmmaker, Douglas Ferguson out of New York. Love this man. I've done some, uh, had some good times with him at New York Comic Con and doing some filming for uh, other people that we are hired to do. And that's how we met. He's just a really smart nerd and uh, he also does martial arts and loves his Kung Fu. This is a huge, we go all over the place. This is one of those, I knew this was going to be a conversation that would have no limits. And then calling in as that conversation ends, we switch immediately over to our friend, Matt Dunford. He's one of the showrunners at San Diego Comic Fest in San Diego. It's a great little Comic-Con. It's put on by a lot of the original runners of San Diego Comic-Con, and it's very much a throwback to how it all began. So if you love comic books and you love all things nerdy and, uh, you want to talk about that and hear about a really cool, fun, small con that's affordable that you can have a good time at. You're going to want to stay tuned for this entire podcast because San Diego Comic Fest has it going on for you. So here we go. Let's get right to it. I'd like to bring in my next guest, Doug Douglas Ferguson. How are you doing, my brother? It's been forever. Uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a long time, almost eight years. I'm doing great, um, better than probably I've ever done before. Yeah, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is it's uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which is one of my favorite days of the year. Uh, we met, I was filming alongside with you at New York Comic Con. Uh, it was a blast uh, just working with you as a, as you know, in production in general. And I love watching you as a filmmaker and everything you do. You do music videos, you're just all over the place. And you're an extremely smart nerd. So I'm excited to have you on Down the Road Show. Thank you, thank you, man. Excited to be here. Really excited to be here. I had to do this uh, a couple of days ago and it just didn't work out, but now I'm glad that I was able to get this done. So let, let's promote you, first of all. What projects you got that you could talk about or that maybe just came out that you could promote? Uh, right now, I'm currently shooting so much stuff and I'm in editing they have so many different things. Um, got a BBC documentary that I was the associate producer on. Um, on a rapper who I've been working with across seas in Scotland for a number of years. Um, that's coming out in May, uh, which will be on BBC Scotland and possibly other BBC channels. Right now, guaranteed BBC Scotland. Um, currently finishing up this visual EP, which is five music videos that are going to just be one consecutive story. Of other music videos in the in the pipeline. Um, me and a friend of mine, we just started this documentary series on um, this short documentary series based off of just people in New York in the current climate of New York, where everybody seems to be gentrified out. You can seems it seems like millionaires are being gentrified out, you know. And so we're we're talking to different people about how they're surviving in New York. And we just shot this documentary, uh, mini documentary called um, The Last, right now, it, it doesn't really have a title, but I'm calling it The Last Barbershop in Brooklyn. Uh, we shot uh, this black barbershop in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. And we shot all day inside this barbershop. And just every, if you've ever been into a black barbershop, I mean, it is, it is, a sight to behold, and so we shot any 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 barbershop, yeah, any barbershop. I just went to a barbershop here in New Mexico recently and got my beard trimmed yeah. professionally and everything, and just it's an experience. It's not just about the hair; it's an experience. Yeah, especially I mean, it's the last 
the men's barbershop is the last bastion of masculinity in that kind of way, whether it's toxic masculinity or non-toxic masculinity, it's the last bastion of true masculinity is the male barbershop. Um, it's, it's, it's what they call a safe space these days. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, no different than um, women have their own salons to go and talk. And right, 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 exactly, where they get to just like be women and talk about women stuff, you know, and, and in a safe environment where you, you don't feel like you're going to be attacked for what you say. Even though when you go into a barber shop, especially you start you start talking about sports, whew, it's, it's about to get go down, man. Some it's argue. game so, on. We shot that. Yeah. So we, we we shot that, and it was a lot, man. And we talked about it a lot, and it was just dealing with the fact that this barbershop might be closed, and because the owner of the barbershop, who inherited it from his father, and they the barbershop's been there for like thirty something years. And now it might close, you know, just due to the fact that, you know, he can't afford the rent and he refuses to raise the rates for his um, proprietors because he feels like they can't afford it. And Good on him. That sucks, but that's awesome. Right. So it's just an interesting, you know, documentary. And, and, and so we're working on different series. Um, probably working on just preliming the next one, which is going to be about, this um, go-go dancer who is, she's a sex worker through and through. I mean, go-go dancing, you know, call girl work, you name it, she does it. And she's very open about it. And she's going to talk to me about it. We're going to make this like mini documentary about it. And I'm surprised that I was able to uh, get someone to talk to me about that. That's, that's actually something I've been wanting to do for years. And it's really hard to do as yeah. a man. Yeah. I'm going to talk about to get sex. them to open up to you as a man, yeah. Right, right, right. And then, but talk about it not necessarily in this negative manner, which a lot of these documentaries do, but just saying someone who like, yo, you do this for a living, like talk to us about it. You know, the same way if you go to Thailand, they just punch a clock and stuff like that. And so just to give almost add a mundaneness to sex work. Right. You know, it's like just regular blue collar work. Yeah. You know, so, I, you know, talking to her, talking to my, my subject, um, for a while about it, and we're, we're we're getting ready to gear up for that. And I'm trying to get all my editing projects done. Right. Um, so you have the production time yeah, space to do that. I just have the time to do that. And then another project I'm working on, um, is a feature film called Once Upon a Time in New York, which I am the cinematographer on. Gotten a lot of news coverage just recently. Just like a bunch of news articles written about it. And um, I'm VPing that, and Amana Santi's in it, and a bunch of other uh, stars are in it, a bunch of other like character actors are popping up in it. And you know, we're, we're we've been shooting it piecemeal, but you know, we're about to go into this you know week of shooting, and I'm really looking forward to all this stuff. So a bunch of little projects and a bunch of things, and it's very been a very busy beginning of the year, which really. Right, right. Oh, you cut out. Check your headphones. Sorry, I'm getting a phone call from my fiance. I just hung up on her. Oh, wait. We'll edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 
so speaking all right, so we can't okay so we can't wait to you know get back in touch with you about the all of these projects especially the mini documentaries those sound fascinating i can't wait to hear more about those but yeah, yeah let's let's because you're a multifaceted nerd like myself who you got on the super bowl baby oh man it's really hard you know because i want to say 49ers like i just really like in my gut i feel 49ers right peace, right that's the underdog right you know you always play and with a run, for the underdog and with a run game like that that's hard to stop right that's another thing i mean they earned it they earned their spot yeah they earned their spot they did but um, on the other t on the other side my homes yeah <laughs> you can't count that dude out no you can't it's really hard man i was watching you know we were in a production meeting and we had the game playing because like we're in this meeting, we're planning all these complicated shots, and we're just like, yeah, but we gotta watch this game though. So we got the game on, and uh, yeah, it was it was like we're all sitting there like, oh man, I can't believe it's gonna be the Chiefs and the 49ers. Like, who's gonna freaking like? And then it's it's such a it's a matchup, man. It's actually I think this Super Bowl is gonna be one of the best of the year. It's yeah, it's not gonna be a boring. No, 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 no. As a Steelers fan, we participated in one of the worst, boringest Super Bowls ever against the Green Bay Packers. And like, we had a party at my house, and I like, I felt like I had to apologize to the people at my party for how bad the game was. Yeah, <laughs> so I definitely think we are going to get a good Super Bowl. I feel like we haven't had a, a Super Bowl that was like, damn, like you know, the the, the stakes felt high. You know, you, uh, we haven't had one, at least in my feeling. I think when the Saints played the Super Bowl, that was one. And then obviously when the Giants played, that was definitely one because the Giants had one of the worst seasons that year and somehow won the Super Bowl. Um, hey, you, exactly. So that was definitely a high stakes year. And we haven't had one in a while. I think this is one because you have two teams that are almost equally matched and you don't know what's going to happen. There's, it's up in the air. I'm going to say 49ers. Just because I think the Chiefs' name is racist. <laughs> I'm just going to go with the 49ers. You know what? I'm totally with you there, too, because I don't know how many decades and all you white people still doing that stupid tomahawk chop. Come on. Right. Yeah. I'm with the 49ers right, for right. that reason, too. I'm with you there. Uh, let's get nerdy. Right. What? Let's get nerdy about... Uh, what, who's your favorite like black entertainer out there? Black creator, comic book writer. I mean, what do you? What should people be aware of, man? Right now, Christopher Priest is probably my favorite black writer, um, comic book writer, uh, filmmaker. Uh, man, you know who I want to really see more of? Uh, I, I I really like the guy who did you know Black Panther, Fruitville Station. I'm forgetting his name right now. Um, Me too. Like, I'll I, put it there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm spacing on his name for some weird reason, but I like him. I want to see more of him, especially non-superhero, non-big movie stuff. Um, I want to see more of him. I want to see Lena Waithe. Uh, Lena Waithe. She's been writing some of the best. And she's been given some of the best opportunities for black filmmakers and black entertainers. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of people have like criticized her, you know, for you can't really call it misogyny because she's a lesbian. I don't know what that what would be the equivalent of that, but they accused her of things because you know things she said and blah blah blah. blah. But I'm like, I don't see anybody 
out there giving more opportunities for African-American and just people, Hispanics and people of color than she is in terms of her writing and her producing. Queen and Slim was amazing. Chicago's amazing. Chi-Town is going to show. That's amazing. A lot of the opportunities that she's creating and, you know, giving a voice to these people. And this is someone who just got her voice. So right. it's like, that's crazy when you, you just get there and then you're like, wait, let me bring this person. Let me bring that person. Let me help this person. Let me help that person. Like she just got her, her, her start. You know, and it's very different from a lot of people where they say, well, let me get way up on, in the in the layer cake, way up on the elevator, and then I'll send the elevator back down. She's at the second floor. <laughs> she was bring, the second bring, floor. Bring like, up, yeah, bringing people up with you. Yeah. yeah. So those people, um, I really want to see more from um, Steve McQueen, black British director. Um, his movies... Hunger, I loved. Um, Shame was incredible. Uh, Ten Years of Slaves was really good. And um, Widows was actually really good, too. And so that's someone who I want to see more of. See, see them put out more work. So, you know, there's... there's Absolutely. Get your asses down to Tyler Perry's new studio. I mean, that's, that's the biggest studio. Everyone else is shooting there in Atlanta. I mean, that's the biggest studio in the country right now. And they're shooting all the Marvel movies there. Disney is shooting all up in there. Uh, you got and, all this and, stuff going on there. And the reunion of all reunions, Bad Boys 3. That was incredible. The whole Bad Boys 3. And then they were shooting uh, Coming to America at the same time. Coming to America 2 at the same time. And they're like yeah. doing little promos on social media. I was dying. I was dying. That was crazy. And then you got, you had like Wesley Snipes. Denzel, yeah, all these, and they were all together. I was like, how did this happen? How did they all just come together in one shot? And I was like, that's for Eddie Murphy. We need to know, keep. We need to keep that going and make that like an expendable seven or some shit. I mean, you you can do something like that. You can do something like that. Why not? Why not? Everybody will go see it. I mean, I'm Bad saying. Boys. The, the box. Can we talk about the box office of Bad Boys Three and yep. how important it is? To cinema? It's gonna be big. It's gonna be it's big. About, it's, the fact that a, a non-superhero movie made 70, a non-superhero action film made $70 million. That's the third installment. Usually the third installment is the cash grab and it doesn't make that much money and it costs the most to produce. And that actually cost them, they didn't spend that much money on that film and it made $70 million. It beat every expectation. It has two black leads. You know, granted, it's Will Smith and Martin Lawrence but still, um, Will Smith hasn't had a, I mean, Aladdin, he had Aladdin as a hit, and he has had, man, he's been very spotty. He's not as, you know, consistent as he used to be. Right, you know? right. But, so, the fact that... Hey, they, they all can't be Wild Wild West. Uh, I like Wild Wild West more than most people, maybe because, like, I always wanted to do something with steampunk, and I always like steampunk stuff. I actually like Wild Wild West a little bit more than most people, but... I, know, I, I, I enjoy it, too. Right. So I think it's the height of, of, of uh, regret for him that he passed on the Matrix to do Wild Wild West. Oh, At the yeah. same time, if he, had, if he had taken the Matrix, right? Right. We would have had been the Matrix. That's one. Two, Ooh. we wouldn't have had the John Wick movie. Right. That's deep. Right. So it's like we have to think about the importance of Will Smith turning that movie down. A lot of people are like, oh, Will, you should have did it, huh? 
would have loved to see it, but mm, it would have been a little bit, it would have been Will Smithy, right? It would have been very <laughs> jokey and, and stuff like that, very Will Smithy. And it wouldn't have had that tone to it that it did because they have to, the thing about uh, Keanu Reeves, and I love Keanu Reeves, and if my mom sees this or hears this, and she hears me criticize Keanu Reeves, she's going to kill me. <laughs> Uh, she's the hugest cat. She's seen everything Keanu Reeves. And she thinks he's the greatest actor of all time. She's wrong, but that's what she thinks. Um, he's they they have to tailor the script around him, right? Uh, and you know, I don't want to call him. I don't want to say he's a bad actor or anything like that because that's someone who you always want to win, and that's right. why the, the fans, people love him. I'm one of the, I'm a, I'm a fan of Keanu Reeves, but he's he grown as an actor. He has, he has, he has, and I think it's because he's he's let go a lot, and I always feel like a lot of actors need to do that. And then, you know, I've been working with this uh, my my friend Stevie, who's a rapper, and I executive produced this EP. And one of the things I I told him was, man, you take yourself way too serious. You take yourself so serious, and you have to realize what you're doing is you are making music for money. You know, like music people don't get paid that much, but I'm like, you're doing something, you're doing something that's ridiculous. Like this shouldn't, this shouldn't, like according to society, you're not doing it, you're, you're, you're doing a hobby. You're not, this is not a career, this is not something, you know, art is not supposed to be something that you profit from. Right, you went you to know? art school, Ooh, are, how are you going to make a living? Right, and if you are, realize where you are, enjoy it, and don't right. take it so seriously. Yeah. No, that no, was me. I took only, myself. I took myself way too seriously. I get that. It, it happens, and you, you eventually. I used to do it the same thing. Listen, I got into this business, and I started. I was 19 years old. Um, I was I was working for Mike Mike Carbonaro, who we both know. I started working for Mike at the age of 16, right? Um, when I got to college, they we invited David Carradine. I was 19. This is how my career started, and it was all because of David Carradine. Kind of old a little bit, um, and we had David Carradine episode. Kill Bill Volume One was out. Like 19, I was 19, 19 going on 20. Kill Bill Volume One came out, and, or was coming out, and we had uh, David Carradine at the show. And this guy came because he wanted to invite, talk to David Carradine about this play that he was making, that was essentially a kung fu movie on stage. Hmm. And I remember talking to the guy, and I said, you know, this sounds great, blah, 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 we'd love to be involved in it and, and everything like that. And he was like, all right. He's like, I don't know what I can offer you, but, you know, if you want to come down, yeah. And I was like, you know, and I went there, and I was the, I think I was one of the very few past members who was a real martial artist. Right. Who had been a martial artist their whole life. And how long have you been doing that, just for everyone watching? How long have you been doing martial arts? Too long to not be doing it <laughs> as good as I should, but like about 20 years. 20 years on and off, on and off 20 years. Okay. Um, it's like long stretches of just not doing anything. But um, yeah, I started you know, training in martial arts and I was like, hey, I know this martial art. I know, I know the story. I know what you're trying to do. And he was like, yeah, come down. And he, uh, the guy's name is David Blanc. He was the writer. And he made me, you know, a fight captain, even though I didn't know anything about that and nothing <laughs> about it. It was just something new. I just like it was it was way different than anything I had ever done in it. 
theater, which I didn't know about. But I learned and I studied, and the next thing you know, I produced that play. And then I went from being the fight captain to the fight, you know, fight director. And, you know, creating fight scenes and doing this and, and starting in the business and then directing a TV show pilot and doing, and so like everything just kept coming from that of just making that leap into doing things, you know, and just saying, you know what, I just got to be stupid and be, and be able to do it. That's one of the things that we all forget. We all forget that as artists. And that's why everyone takes themselves so serious because you forget that you need to be a little bit naive in order to make some kind of success in this business. Right, be a right. Bit yeah, show a little bit of yourself. Yeah, and, and, you, and what you realize is the more serious you take yourself, the more of a joke everybody takes you. Yeah. Well, okay, speaking of serious and speaking of a joke, let's get to American Gods. New producer, oh, white guy, fired Orlando Jones, who was playing Mr. Nancy, the coolest, blackest god ever to be on television. Oh, yeah, he and he got fired for being too black. Yeah, he was black as fuck. <laughs> he was, and the funny thing is, what cracked me up about that um, is that when I watched that first episode where he's talking to the slaves, I was like, ooh, he's too black. Ooh, he's, ooh, that's too much. He's telling too much now. And I knew that that was going to come to a head. I knew it because the white perception of black people, they want to, they want the Bill Cosby, oh, you know, before they knew he was racist, <laughs> but they want that, they want that Bill Cosby image of black people. That's what they want. Right. You know, they want the state and, and, and to realize that there's some real motherfuckers out here, like that character and how Orlando Jones, who is brilliant. Like, let's talk about, this is a man who revitalized 7-Up. No one was drinking 7-Up until he started writing those commercials and all the stuff that he did. I mean, the man is, he's a genius writer. He's a genius creative. And to really- Even, even Neil really, Gaiman, even Neil Gaiman, who wrote the books, had to fight for producer and writing credits for Orlando Jones because I guarantee you there's no way all of those were Neil Gaiman's words. Oh. No, because they let him go and write it. They said, you write it. And that whoever the showrunner, the showrunner for that first season, uh, uh, what's his name? That's his name. But he was a, he's a genius to say, I'm not going to write this. You go write it. You know exactly what you want to say. And he made it brilliant. And it was that speech, that speech that I kept reposting from the second season. Right. Where he's like telling them. And I said, you kind of fucking killed yourself with that speech, man. Because you said it, you said something too real. And a lot of people aren't ready for that. And I guarantee um, the white uh, showrunner had a lot of his Bill Cosby black friends who were like, that's not the image we want to portray of ourselves. And he's probably like a member of the NAACP and all that stuff. And, then, and, they, and they probably just, you know, got him to get rid of this character. The funny thing is, after that happened, right? Right. They, they got a lot of the black characters on that show because that show does hire a lot of black actors. And they got a lot of the black actors to tweet and say, yeah, blah, 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 blah. This show is, you know, diversity and blah, 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 blah. But that's beginning. That's not the point. Not yeah, that's no. not the point. Not at all. They're missing the point. It's like, it's not that they, it's the show's diverse and all that other stuff. Because of course it's diverse. It's about gods from around the world. Gotta be diverse. Yeah. It's about the fact that this character didn't fit your idea of what black people should be. And there's no white man in the world who should tell a black person, how they should act. Amen. Bill Maher made that same mistake. He made that same mistake 
he was saying he was talking about um he was talking about Brian Gumbo or somebody like that. And he was like, Well, I'm I'm blacker than him. And I was like, Whoa, 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 you don't get to say who's black and who's not black. Yeah, no, I can't say Bill Maher anyway. Right. Black people can't say who's black and I can't stand Bill Maher. I could go on and on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, we won't uh, spend time on that. No. Right. Uh black people can't say who's who's black and who's not black and all this other stuff like that. You know, I growing up people have been like, You don't sound black and people used to say that to me all the time, but I'm from the South Bronx. And I've always sounded like this. I've never not changed my voice. You know, I, I you know, I over enunciate some words, I can't say other words. That's just a, to this day, like people are like, Well, oh, you speak so proper and I'm like, I don't because I still can't say with. I always say with. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, because I'm from the hood, and that is just how I talk a lot of times. And um, it's your vernacular, and there's no point in changing it. Right, right. And um, a lot of times, people people will criticize you if you don't sound a certain way, or if your voice is not a certain intonation. But I'm like, why is it that only black people get that? Like, we have to fit into a mold. We mm-hmm. have to fit into this mold, one way or another. We just can't be. Right. You, know, no, we're you can't be yourselves. You got to make sure everybody else is comfortable with how they see you. Right. Right. And I don't know any other race that really gets put in that box like that. Maybe Asian, but to a certain extent. But definitely black people, Mexican. Uh, we all get we get put into this box, man. And yeah. it's like, you know. I definitely, uh, man, I, I would say Mexican for sure because I've definitely had Mexican friends who, you know, are not what someone would call stereotypical Mexican, and they've been called Mexican, you know. And I was like, why, why do we have to fit in this box? Like, why can't we just be like everybody else? You know, I'm, you know, I'm a black guy. I say martial arts. I go to the gym. I'm a super nerd. You know, I love reading. I love all this other stuff. And it's like, well, you can't do that. You can't be an artist. And you can't be a filmmaker. Maybe you could be a bodyguard. Maybe you'd be a football player. You know, I was like, I don't want to be any of that. You know, when I was a kid, um, there was this guy, this, bar- this guy, um, he was a barbershop, a uh, barber. He was a shitty barber. You know what I mean? You ever go to a barbershop and you know who the bad barber is? And you're like, please don't let me get, get that guy's chair. I always got the, the open chair. Barber. Oh. There's a reason that chair's always open. That's the bad barber, man. And uh, and I was just like, I still I remember just um, this guy used to be like when I was a kid and teenager, he used to be like, oh, you know, you should you should you should be a boxer. You should you should go boxing. You know, you 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 could fight some rounds with Tyson. You'd be rich and blah blah blah. And I said, well, I don't want to do that. I'm smart. I don't need to do any of that. I don't. Why would I want to get hit for a living? You know, and then that guy, and I remember I joined the football team because a lot of people were like pressuring me to join the football team. And I remember I quit the football team after two seasons because I cracked my ribs really bad. Ugh. And I was like, what am I doing this for? I'm not, the, I mean, I was good, but I'm like, I'm not going to get a scholarship. I know that. I know what level you have to be at to be in the scholarship. But I was like, right. and I'm not at that level. I don't care enough about it. I don't care. I would skip practices all the time. I didn't really care about it. I was like, you know, I was like in the AV club. I was like more, more intrigued by stuff like that. Right. You know, Plus that's self-realization. Like, right. I took fencing classes and shit like that. I was like, I'm not going to, I like, I'm right. I know what, I knew what my level was. And I was like, this isn't going to get me a college scholarship or anything like that. Like I'm smart enough to get an academic scholarship, which I did. 
Um, and I was like, I'm not going to get, a, you know, this is not going to do anything beneficial for me, but give me cracked ribs and possibly brain damage. I'm not doing this anymore. Right. Remember, Prove something to uh, who? Right. I remember I got the shit knocked out of me. I mean, this guy was huge. And I was huge. I was, I was huge when I was playing football. I was like, you know, already six foot one, you know, about 230 pounds. Mean. I was huge. And I got the shit knocked out of me. Cracked my ribs. I felt it. I felt the crunch. I got up, took my helmet off, and left. <laughs> I didn't say anything to my coach. I didn't say anything to anybody. I didn't talk to anybody. I left. I just went home. I got on the train, went home. Didn't even go and change my clothes. Nothing. I was fucking done. I was like, never playing this sport again. Yeah, hey, I, 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 I had cracked ribs, and I remember that crack and hearing it and feeling it, and you're probably smart for keeping all your padding to hold everything in place anyway. Yeah, I was just done. I went home. My mom took me to the doctor, and uh, they picked me up, and I remember, like, the next day in school, everyone was like, oh, what happened? What happened? I was like, look at my ribs, man. I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. This is stupid. And my coach was really angry at me and all this other stuff like that, and I was like, bro, you can get mad. I remember Exactly what I told him. I said, you get mad, get glad, and scratch your ass, but there's no way I'm going to get back on that football field. No <laughs> way. Yeah. And, I mean, that guy, I ended up, there was a huge confrontation because he was also the gym teacher, and he failed me. He failed me because I quit the football team. Oh, what a dick. No I, met every, I met every requirement from the gym and all that stuff you have to do. And I remember, like, him, it was, like, my senior year, and he failed me. And it was almost an issue with me not graduating, but I had gotten really good scores or anything else. I got accepted. Actually, I, I had gotten accepted to an Ivy League college, and all, even though I didn't go, I, I just got – it was good enough for me to graduate, but I could have gotten – it was – it fucked my GPA up to where I couldn't – I was almost going to be the salutatorian, and I didn't get it. So oh! I was like, I didn't even argue with it though because I was like, oh, as long as I get to graduate, that's all that matters. I don't really care. I was like, you know, and I was like, I don't care how you feel about that. I don't care if you feel like you got your revenge because I quit the football team. Great. You know, you got your revenge. You feel good about yourself. That's you know, just stupid, like, egotistical adults. Oh. And he's still, the funny thing is, he's still working. He's old as shit. Uh, I, 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 my school's in, um, in um, I went to school in Hell's Kitchen. And so sometimes I'm in Times Square and I've seen him. I've seen him a bunch of times. And I remember like I ran into him one time. I said, remember you failed me senior year? And I was like, well, you know, you quit the football team and blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, so he, he still remembers. Oh, oh, he, oh, he definitely, he was, he was so bad that I quit the football team. I felt like there was some racism in it. He was a white guy and I, there was some racism in it. There was something about it because he was so angry. I wasn't even the biggest guy on the team. The biggest guy on the team was my friend Xavier, who was seven feet tall. Oh, damn. Like, wide receiver, couldn't miss him. You couldn't miss him. You know, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And I was like, and he, you know, he was, he was black and Native American. His family were like, win, win, what was it called? Firewalker, some shit like that. They, they were people who, back in the old days, when they used to build the buildings, they would be the ones who went on the top stories and walked across the beams. They made like a documentary about it. That was his family. That was they were known for. So he was huge and agile. He was the only seven foot, foot, 
coming for two guys new who could do backflips. So he pretty much just came out of the womb ready to kick ass. Ready to go. And I was like, you had him. And I was like, and he put no, I said, that's the guy you needed to put your attention in. He could have went pro. You know? No, but the coach wanted you. Yeah, he was, I don't know what it was, because I wasn't that, I I skipped training sessions, I swear, like, I remember we went to, uh, I was not, I was not a team player, I wasn't a team member, because we had gone to football camp, and any, I don't know if you've ever been to football camp, but they always do some borderline stuff that, (laughs) I I went to baseball camp, yeah, yeah, I was like, I'm not a party to any of that, I was like, anybody does anything to me, I'm gonna fucking kill you. <laughs> and I was, and because I was the kid, I was the kid from the hood, you know, in the school, no one, you know, when I, the school I went to was uh, predominantly white, predominantly wealthy. Um, I got a scholarship there, and when I when I said that to them, I was like, I'm gonna fucking kill you. They believed me, and then <laughs> everyone left me. They moved to the other side of the room, and I had like my own little corner because they had, like, I'm gonna kill you. They were like, Oh shit, he's from the Bronx. I'm doing. <laughs> And so, yeah, I mean, I was, yeah, that was, that was an experience, man. But someone could just get back to the point. Um, but the point being you're an individual. Right. Of being an individual, of not fitting into your, to a societal mode of what it is to be black. I think that that was still the most insulting thing that you can do to an actor. And you could say, hey, man. You know, a Nazi story is done. We're going to kill this character off because that's, you know, they, they do that in that show and just do it like that. But just like because he doesn't fit your criteria of what a black person should be as, as a white man, which is even worse. Right. It doesn't, fit your, right, it doesn't fit your criteria as a white man who, you know, Ivy League guy who probably has a bunch of Ivy League black friends. You know, who's he's like, well, I want to represent them, but there's plenty of characters who can do that. You know, we need that one character that is the real black man, you know, like the, the not the real black man, but just that black man who is out there in this world, who feels disenfranchised. You know, tons of black people. This is why you have black guys who vote for Trump. You know, they yeah. feel left out, they feel disenfranchised. Like most of the people who voted for Trump and why they voted for Trump is because they feel left out. And when you do that, to people, this is that's that's how stuff like that happens, right? So and and, and, like, like, well, and you're basically saying, I mean, he look, he doesn't have to represent all black guys, but he does definitely represent some. Oh yeah, he represents a portion of them. He represents, you know, I would say that 11 percent of black people who voted for Trump, that character represents, you know, just the realness that are gonna, they're going to say say the things that you wouldn't expect them to say, and. You know, these are guys who are educated, but they just they see the world very differently. And, right. they, and, and that was their representation. Right. And coming from you saying 11%, that's like a strong endorsement, knowing that you're probably dumbing that down for the white people watching this, meaning it's more like 25%. Probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes you can't just scare white people like that, Casey. You can't scare them. All right. 11% is not scary. 25% is scary. <laughs> right and, and it depends on our day we're because we're all individuals like i get i take a lot of flack right. on social media for being a bald white man who talks smack on 
white supremacists and white nationalists and anyone who's a white racist, and all of a sudden I hate my own people and my own self. But no, I hate racism. Big difference. Right. Learn. And, it's, and it's not, oh, I've had this whole conversation because people always talk about, well, you know, you can have black pride or you can't have white pride. I said, well, here's why you can have black pride and not white pride. When you have black pride, the pride of being black is because most African Americans do not know where in Africa they come from. That right. was taken away from them. Their language was taken away from them. Their history was taken away from them. Their everything was taken away from them. They were given a language. They were given a religion. Everything they got was forced upon them, and they don't have it. So being proud in what the accomplishments you've done, even though all of that was taken away from you, is something to be proud of. And you can be proud to be white, but you can't, you know, I mean, you can be proud of your, cult, your white culture. You can't be proud of being white. Like, for example, you're Scottish, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just about to say that. Like, I'm proud to be Scottish. I'm a white Scottish man yeah. on both sides of the fence on my family, very much so. But, right. and I understand, like, because it took me a long time growing up in my, you know, teens, 20s, and 30s, and then having multiple experiences with different black friends out there while driving in vehicles and getting pulled over to realize my white privilege. And what most, here's, here's where I think the separation is that most people have a problem with. Uh, I'm talking to you white people out there now. Just because you are white privileged, we're born with it, we're all born with white privilege, doesn't make you a racist. It doesn't. It doesn't make you a racist, but also... There's this misconception, and my fiance is white, and her family's from Middle America, and there's the hugest misconception that white privilege means you have a, you don't work hard. That's nothing to do with your work ethic. No, mm -mm. nothing at all. White privilege, white privilege is walking in the store with your black friend, and while he's being looked at, like while everyone's following him around, you're over there stealing. That's your white privilege. Yeah, but white, white privilege is your black friends being followed by the mall security guard no matter where they are in the mall. That's never happened right. to me. Right. You know what I'm saying? That is what, that is what that means. That is what that is. If you can break it down to the most basic thing, it's that nobody, nobody accuses you of anything just for being white. Your whiteness has nothing to do with who you are as an individual. Right. You know? And let, in fact, let me, exactly. let me next level that with actual multiple experiences that I've had, okay? Now, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge cannabis user. I smoke it, but not just that. I promote CBD and all of its healthful uh, usages. But uh, way before that, I've always been on the legalized things and uh, promoting that and a big time activist. And well, it's one of the oldest systemic racist things that they are locking brown people up for in prisons. And for one thing, look, I lived in Utah for years where once you could go to prison, get you in prison. And I've been busted by cops in different states around this country who every single time, I don't, and this is why I don't have a record, because every single cop took my weed, threw it away, and told me that I was lucky I was white. I mean, yeah. I mean, there are plenty of black people who are doing serious time for marijuana. And kudos to the states there's a lot of places that are legalizing marijuana and then now taking those, they're getting, they're getting them, but they're not just legalizing marijuana, they're freeing the people who were under, who got arrested under these marijuana laws. Those and records need to be expunged are, too. Next level. Yeah, so they're doing that. Yeah, so, yeah, so a lot of people, a lot of states are doing that. Chicago did it in San Francisco. Colorado's following suit. A lot of states are, are doing that because they realize, like, oh, yeah, you know, we need to also 
these guys were arrested under these laws. Let's just get rid of it. I, I mean, there's, there's a practical reason for that as well, because if you're a DA, right, or you're a cop, and that, that was under your jacket, that actually now affects your jacket. So instead of having a bunch of people now, either, it, it also gets rid of litigation. Because a bunch of people who are in jail, let's say you legalize marijuana and I'm in jail for 20 years under marijuana, marijuana statutes, I now have a legal recourse to sue the state. Yep. And so that now, so by, by expunging the records and letting them go, you're getting rid of, I'm pretty sure everyone who's gotten out of jail signed some kind of affidavit that says they wouldn't sue the state in order for them to get out. And that is, that's how they did that. So of course, there are other reasons behind that. There are always other reasons behind it. Yeah, you, know, you just gotta look just, deep. No, yeah, nobody does anything out of the goodness of, of their heart. Not in this country. Um, mm -hmm. I hear that. Yeah, especially the government. Especially the government. So it's sort of like today. Oh, the most disgrace. Speaking of mine with the. Oh yeah, yeah. I wanted to bring. I was glad. Yes, bring that up. Bring that yeah, up. The most disgraceful thing. The FBI. The FBI. The fuck you, motherfuckers. Persecuted this man for his entire adult life. We know this. It's on record. It really happened. It's not made up. It's not fake news. This is real. Had the nerve to say we acknowledge, you know, Martin Luther King and blah 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 blah. No, you don't get to fucking do that. And I don't care that it's a different FBI. You might say it's a different FBI. I don't know about that. You know, there's still guys around from the 70s that still work in the FBI. And you don't get you don't get to say that after persecuting. So many black radicals, you know, the Black Panthers and all that stuff. Like we, the media did such a good job of making the Black Panthers, demonizing them, that people are saying, well, the Black Panthers are nothing but the, the Black KKK. And I'm like, well, how many white people have the Black Panthers hung? Zero. How many white people have the Black Panthers Zero. killed? Zero. You know, mm -hmm. so, but the media did such a great, the media and the FBI did such a great job at criminalizing them at, at and making them look like, I mean, the only time in record that a Republican has repealed gun laws were in California because of the Black Panthers. Right. Um, and and so, that's and that's why there and that's why there, that's why there has to be a Black Lives Matter movement. That's why these right. kinds of things. That's why there is Black History Month. Because, it's not to it's right. not to throw it in white people's face. It's because it's necessary. Right. You have to realize that the government was mobilized against an entire people. You know, the strongest agencies in the world, the FBI, one of the strongest policing force, mobilized against black people while allowing the mafia to become the most powerful organization at that time. So powerful, in fact, it's still rumored that they assassinated Kennedy. No one knows if it's true or not. Who the fuck knows? But there's so many people who that, that story keeps coming up. That whole Trafficante, Jimmy Hoffa, all that, that story keeps coming up and up and up again. You see it in The Irishman, that, he wrote about it. And, and it might be just an old wives tale that they've all told over and over again. But, you know, sometimes, a lot of times people say stuff, some, there's a germ of truth to it. There's, right. there's some kind of, there's some truth to that. I, hey, look, yeah, I met someone who claimed they knew where Jimmy Hoffa was buried. They told right. me exactly where he is part of the concrete in an overpass in Detroit. Shit, don't right. come after me, Someone government. Someone said that. I've, I've, I've actually heard that same story about the Detroit thing. I actually heard it from, I don't even, I'm not going to say the guy's name. 
the mob guy, or he used to be a mob guy, he, he, he bought his way out of the mob. His story is actually quite well known. And um, he, uh, he funds films now. And he actually had a, a sit down and a conversation with him. And he told he said the same thing about the Detroit. That he's buried somewhere in Detroit. A lot of people, that's so, you've heard that story. I've heard that story as well. See, you see what I mean? Like, there's a germ of truth somewhere around that. Um, right, right, I right. I heard, I heard about him being buried in an overpass in Detroit. Same exact story. Yeah. And, and, same and, exact story. and as the saying goes, the more absurd the truth, the more likely it is. Right, exactly. So there's, there's a lot of that, man. And you have to think, and that was one of the significance of, of, the, of the Irishman is, is, was talking about how powerful the Teamsters Union was and all that stuff. Right. And, um, but yeah, the, the FBI, they let this happen. They let all of this stuff happen while just concentrating on persecuting these black radicals to the point where uh, there was a story, there was a letter where um, the FBI wanted the mob to kill Dick Gregory. That's a real fucking thing. That really happened. They really had this conversation. It was a phone conversation where they wanted the mob to kill uh, Dick Gregory. To plausible deniability, basically. Yeah. Right. And I said, that's fucking, that's nuts. That's nuts. Our government taxes at work. Right. And then you know why, and I always say this, because they didn't want poor white people to realize that they were niggers too. And they didn't want them to realize it. They didn't want them to see it. That you are the same, me, you, if you are not part of that rich, and I don't mean you've got a million dollars in the bank. I'm talking about rich. I'm talking about Jeff Bezos had to give his wife $35 billion, right? And at the end of the year, instead of coming up $35 billion less, he came up with $55 billion more, you know, and still became, still was the richest man in the world. I'm talking about that level of rich, that level of, of power. Right. Um, these people, the, those, are, those are the ones you know, you, it's, it's us against them. It's not us against them. You know, it's not us against us. It's us against them. And they don't want you to realize that. They don't want you to realize how powerful you are. Yeah. You know, they want you to. There's power in numbers. That. Right. So they don't want you to realize that poor white people, black people, Asian people, you know, not even poor white, even middle class white people, because, you know, the middle class are the ones who get screwed over, you know, but they make them believe. They say, hey, you're middle class. You're better than everyone else. You're better than those black guys over there. You're better than them. And you're not. You're, you're really, you're in the same boat as I'm in. We're all in the same boat. It's just where, you know, some people are in the back of the boat, some people are in the front of the boat. But we're all in the boat and none of us are the captain. Exactly. And the real color we should be focusing on isn't the color of our skin. It's the color green, the color of money, the color yeah. that controls yep, yep. everything else. Yep. Yep. That is, that's, that is the color that we need to be concerned with. And I remember saying to someone, like, they always talk about, like, you know, people are so upset over politics. You know, my fiance is, you know, the quintessential white American feminist. We get into some heated discussions about that. Um, and 
you know, she's one of these people who was so upset when Trump got elected, and I don't know if she cried or not, but she might have. I don't know. We didn't. We weren't dating at that time. But um, we. I was like, you know, I was like, did you realize that every black person when that happened were like, so it's another day. You know, people get elected every presidents get elected every day. D, like we don't really. Nothing's gonna change for us. We're still gonna be right where we are. You know, and that's how we saw it, and that's how it is. You know, even though you know they'll say, well, there's been more jobs, you know, of African Americans under Trump than you know than under Obama, but those are because of Obama era laws and Obama era policies. That wasn't Trump policy. That was Obama policy. Right. Um, but also at that time in that four-year gap, you also had more at, at the time under Obama's presidency. This started under Bush Jr. There were more blacks in college at that time than there were in prison. So you give that whole Obama year, those Obama years, and that's four years of college, two years of graduate school. Next thing you know, you have more blacks in the workforce. You have more black lawyers, you have more black doctors, you have more black, you know, day laborers, you got more black, you know, uh, uh, welders and construction workers and all that stuff because these, these are the people who were in school at the time and now they're out. Right. You know, so then they go out, they go around the world, they get jobs, they become mechanics and all that stuff. And so, yeah, of course. Of course it looks like, you know, there are more. Because there are more, and it's not more because of you. You didn't create any policy that somehow, within, you know, the short amount of time you've been president. Yeah, four years. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. It takes so much time to, to, to create that. It took Obama eight years to undo the damage of George Bush Jr. Right. Uh, and, I, and, and because of <laughs> because of Trump, we kind of like fondly remember George Bush Jr. Sometimes, oh, that rascally George Bush Jr. You know, he was that man was he was terrible. He was I know, but now president. all of a sudden now he's like, ah, oh, he wasn't that bad in comparison. Right. But guess what? They did the, they did the same thing about his dad. <laughs> They said the same thing about his dad when he was president. That's when George true. Bush became president, people were like, when George Bush Jr. became president, like, yeah, George Bush Sr. wasn't that bad. Forgetting that he raised taxes radically, a lot of the drug laws that we have now came from him, all of that stuff like that. And so we forget that, and we kind of like fondly remember George Bush Sr. And we said, yeah, he was okay. But no, no, he wasn't okay. He was terrible. Uh, I mean, we haven't, I can't really remember. Uh, not in my history, not in my lifespan, have we had a good Republican president. Not in my lifespan. I'm not saying there never was one, because that's a lie. There obviously was. There was Abraham Lincoln. There was, was, Teddy, was Teddy Roosevelt Democrat or Republican? I'm not sure. I think he was um, Democrat. Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely had some good Republican presidents, and we can't, but not in my lifespan. You know, people would say Ronald Reagan, I disagree. Uh, just because he I wrote, he wrote all the war on drugs that has everybody incarcerated in private prisons now. Right. That was him and right. Biden, him and right. Biden's pet project. Right. And and so there was that, and that, there's a bunch of other shit. There's the whole fact that it was Ronald Reagan who let them flood the streets, flood the, you know, the streets with crack. That whole yeah. crack cocaine shit was to fund, was to fund the fucking... Iran, the, the Contra War, was to fund that war in Nicaragua, 
and they let all that coke come in through, through Ricky Ross and all those guys. And I was like, if you believe that some drug dealer without a high school education came up with crack, then I have some crack for you. Right. Like some scientist invented that. You know, that was the whole thing. You know, my my dad used to tell me that. Uh, my dad used to own a club in the seventies and eighties. And so he watched it start. Right. So right before the crack epidemic hit, there became this huge movement to free up the base of cocaine, which gave you this like instant high. And it was called freebasing. And a lot of the celebrities did it, uh, which is where they smoked cocaine, they mixed it with ether, they mixed it with this, they did all this other stuff. And a lot of celebrities did it. And uh, that's how that's how Richard Pryor got lit up on fire, was trying to freebase and he had ether in it and exploded and, and lit him on fire. And he even and, used um, it in his own stand-up comedy. Yeah, yeah, he did. He talked about the stand-up comedy and all that stuff. And and so my dad was saying that all of a sudden this rock comes out, you know, out of nowhere. There's, you know, and it was crap. And he, you know, and he was telling me the same thing. He's like, "There's no way someone thought in their head. If I mix baking soda and water and this and that, and I and I boiled it and I did all this, all the process that goes through to making crack. No one had no no drug drug dealer with a ninth grade or eighth grade education is going to come up with that. That's a scientist that figured that out. That is that is you know that's a formula, and a scientist had to figure that out." Right, because you're creating a chemical reaction to create the substance. Right. So either a government scientist did it or a scientist over in the Nicaraguan people when they were cooking up, you know, the cocaine and all that stuff like that. But we allowed them, the CIA, we know this now, people went to jail behind this, so we know it happened. You know, there was, what was that, the guy who was the head of the CIA at the time, he took the fall for it. They, that whole Iran-Contra thing, he took the fall for it, but they allowed the Contras to bring metric tons of cocaine into California and into all these places. And those, that cocaine became crack. And that is how the crack epidemic of the 80s started, 80s and 90s. I mean, there is, I mean, if we, and we feel the effects to this day because if you look at a lot of kids um, who were born from parents, they, they're drug addicts. There are just so many kids. Born drug addicts. Born so many, yeah, and they, they are drug addicts. You know, we look at the, 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 the insane way heroin, and we're almost in like the 60s level of heroin abuse, and, 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 not, and, and that's all from Oxycontin and all this other shit. And the opioid addiction, and the, meth, the methamphetamine addiction, the amphetamine addiction, and all this stuff that these kids are taking, and it's because, and they think it's cool because, you know, rappers are talking about it now, and we got rappers rapping about using cocaine, and Things that you know, if you were a rapper, you did you, you did cocaine. You would never ever say you did cocaine, you know. But now they're just like saying it, and it's just there's a lot of it. But it all stems from that. That is the fallout from a Republican president. And I and I hate to say it because I don't necessarily consider myself a Democrat. I would say I'm definitely socially liberal, but I'm fiscally conservative. You right. know, I, I believe in the right. You know, I like to save money, especially tax money. You know, I want to see my taxes, but there are things that I want my taxes to go to, and there are things that don't want my taxes to go to. I would rather my taxes go to free healthcare than go to funding your military industrial complex. Like, and that's really need to, you know, okay. 
preach and that's not socialism oh whoa. hey coming to the show here popping in in the middle of this interview that is our friend uh matt dunford he yeah i was uh, just uh tuning in in the background and so i just want to say hey what's cracking and i got a wonder I got a history lesson on crack that i had never thought of before <laughs> Usually well, I'm the, uh, one, the guy who just talks about the geeky stuff, but I guess that's why I'm here too. So, um, hey, what's up? But yeah, we're, we're all nerds. Let me introduce you guys real quick. Uh, Douglas Ferguson, he's in New York. He's a great filmmaker, does music videos, all kinds of stuff. Very smart nerd. Uh, and uh, Dunford here is reporting in from California on the West Coast. He is also one of the showrunners for San Diego Comic Fest, which is I, a oh, awesome. heck of a blast. So welcome oh, yeah. to the show. Thank you for having me on. It's wonderful to be here. It's like, I'm not sure when I was going to pop on or that sort of thing, but I figure now's as good a time as any. So uh, yeah, uh, you know, I've had a blast learning about drug history right now. My thing is comic book history is I pretty much like can't put myself with big comics all over the board and all that sort of thing. It's like, you can't, you know, you know it's just, I'm always reading, I'm always doing comic book stuff. And of course I'm promoting the, uh, promoting the convention, San Diego Comic Fest coming up in March. Yeah, which I'm, I'm bummed I can't attend now that I'm in New Mexico. Oh, uh, yeah. It's like, I'm, I thought that you were still in Poway, man. But New Mexico, oh, well. Albuquerque's a lovely town. Uh, it, it, actually, it actually is a lovely town. They just had uh, the Albuquerque Comic Con uh, this weekend, and uh, it was a really well, well-run show. I was uh, glad to pop in real quick. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, well, thank you for having me here. It's, it's wonderful to be back on Down the Road. Excellent, excellent. Uh, anything else you wanted to add, Doug? You want to hang out? Uh, no, I gotta go because I'm actually, um, I'm bringing, I'm, I'm supposed to be cooking dinner for my fiance and my mom who's coming over and I just got so caught up in talking to you. <laughs> hey, so, um, it's my pleasure, man. It was, it's been too long since we've actually talked and caught up. So uh, I'm glad you, yeah, I'm man. glad we got to do this. We've been trying to do this for like a week. Yeah. I know. I'll, you know, if you want me back, I'll be back. I'll stay more on topic. We, you, you know, we went all over the place, so hopefully you have something that you can do. <laughs> I'm using the whole thing, and then we're going right into we're going right into the Dunford right after that. So I don't I don't edit out, man. That's a good conversation. So thanks all for right, being man. thanks okay. for being here. No we problem. will talk to you later, Douglas, and it's a pleasure. We'll see you down the road somewhere. All right, see you soon. All right, late. All right, so. Dunford, man. Wow. So, yeah, coming up in March already. That's, that's insane. March, uh, March 5th to the 8th is San Diego Comic Fest. Now that, uh, and now that Mr. Ferguson's gone, uh, I'm not trapped in here with you. You're trapped in here with me. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, one of the other reasons I wanted to, not just to talk about San Diego uh, Comic Fest is because you're a very well-educated nerd and you're just like probably one of the biggest Spider-Man aficionados I know. Uh, quite frankly, uh, we, we, we talk about all kinds of stuff on this show. Uh, and so I actually kind of wanted to pick your brain a little bit about uh, being on the autistic scale because you, uh, or not the autistic, well, you, you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Spectrum, spectrum is the uh, kind word. I'm not really offended by any of the terms or whatever. So it's just like, okay, if you want to call me special, I'm unique. I'm like gifted, whatever. Yeah, yeah, I've heard it all. Yes, you are. You you are. But uh, I was reading one of your posts on Facebook uh, in 2019 uh, about a kid. Uh, you were at an event, and this kid didn't exactly know. You know, he was autistic, and his mom was having a hard time communicating with him as a parent. And after I read your post, it was just like, wow, 
your advice was some of the best advice I think I've ever heard that maybe a parent could get when dealing with an autistic kid or anyone else in a family member uh, uh, dealing with that because it, it's on our end, we could be a little insensitive and stupid. Yeah, people can be uh, pretty insensitive or stupid. Um, some might even say men are scum. Well, oops, I can't say that or Facebook will ban me for another month. That's okay, this is YouTube. I've been banned for that so many times too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, it's just, um, of course, parents are used to kids doing normal things, and so they're not really used to the um, unique examples of children. And of course, the whole thing that parents really should be looking at is just, what are your kids into? If you have autistic children, it's gonna, they're gonna have some very narrow yet intense interests. So just, you know, when I think about myself as a child, I had like, you know, my very narrow interests, which started off like pirates at first, which got me into Lego pirates, which got me into Legos, which got me into reading my first Lego comic, um, when I've got the Captain Redbeard and the uh, Mystery of the Gold Medallion, which was my first comic, and that got me into a, being a comic reader. And then as a comic reader, that transitioned me into Spider-Man, which began my lifelong obsession with Spider-Man. So it's just, you do these little things, you take your baby steps, but it's always going to be something that you're obsessed with because you know what, this is cool. I want to know more about this and then I want to learn everything about this and I want to talk about this with people. So there's only certain things that these kids can talk about because they invest themselves in these things they're very interested in. Just a capacity for knowledge. Them. Yeah, just just talk with them about what they're interested in and it's like they we do these things just to figure out how to do them better and how to understand them better and a lot of times when I see someone who you know, does like want to talk to me about Spider-Man. It's like, it's like, oh my God, it's like someone who speaks my language. And <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of parents don't realize that with kids. I mean, depending on, you know, what are your kids into? Are they in the Minecraft or in the Fortnite? Just let them talk about what they're into and slowly but surely let them branch out into new things. It becomes a kind of a challenge for us because we're kind of scared to get into new stuff because not that we might not like it, but the fact that we might enjoy it. And as you can tell, we tend to be a little bit on the perfectionist side and the obsessive side. So especially with me and you have like this giant like wall of comics, that's one of my walls of comics. Not everything here has been read yet. And I don't really have the time to do that anymore because I've shifted a focus into cultivating the comic book community around Southern California to making things better for everyone and being an event guy and just like being everyone's best friend. And that's kind of where things have gone now because I just don't have a lot of time or energy to read nowadays. It sucks, but that's just the way my life is now. Right. Yeah. You just got back from LA. Like how many comic book, uh, I mean, comic, uh, yeah, comic book stores did you hit? Support your local comic book stores, people. Support your local comic book stores. Uh, yes, I did a promotional tour throughout uh, Los Angeles. I was supposed to have uh, more time to uh, do, uh, to do some uh, stuff at um, in LA, but I got um, recruited for a secret project that I can't talk about until around April with a certain individual who I've always really wanted to work with, and I'm never going to. Um, uh, and I'm uh, and I'm all and uh, I, I can't say anything just yet because there, there is a non-disclosure agreement involved. But back to the question, Which I understand, and we'll have you back when you can. Yeah. And, but I did do a nice tour hitting a lot of new stores. And so I got to hit Alakazam Comics in Orange County and they were really great. And then Pop Comics, this little boutique shop in uh, downtown uh, Anaheim. And it was really cool. And I, 
yeah, and I uh, made my way up to uh, Golden Apple Comics for the first time. I've actually never been there before. And then, surprisingly, three blocks away, there's another comic book store that's thriving, Mega City One. And these stores do very different things, so they're not stepping on each other's toes at all. And after that, um, I you know just went off to uh, Secret Headquarters. And then the next day, it's like I start my oh, actually that night, I actually ended up uh, getting invited to a friend's Jurassic Park trivia night that he hosted at this uh, bar called Idle Hour. And to my shocking surprise, the bulldog from Dave Stevens' Rocketeer is in the back of this place. And I was freaking out when I saw it because I'm a huge Rocketeer fan. Yeah, great, it's and classic. Yeah, and so that night I got to stay at the home of Steve Siegel, a wonderful writer from the Man of Action crew, and he was like oh. wrapping up a Ben 10 script or something. He's and awesome. yeah, we just talk comics and we just hang out and all night. And it was like really cool seeing his studio and all the stuff that he's worked on and hearing some great behind the scenes stories, following with the day of hitting Pasadena Comic Con, hitting Collector's Paradise, hitting Retro Comics, the store, um, Comics Factory, and then going all the way back down, like on my way through to uh, the grand premiere of the Atomic Basement in Long Beach, which was uh, run by my friend Mike Wellman. It's, uh, I just got to go there. And so I was, uh, I had a blast just doing all this stuff, but I was just exhausted. And then now it's just, it's the life of, you know, getting, you know, moving beyond San Diego to try to get the people involved uh, in different communities to try to come down for San Diego Comic-Con because I think San Diego has the best comic community of any city in the world, but people just think it tends to dry up as soon as Comic-Con is over. It's like, no, it's like this all 52 weeks of the year. Right, 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 right. Uh, San Diego Comic-Con may be my yearly mecca, but the, San Diego is one of, my, one of the cleanest cities in the country, for one. There's yeah. tons to do down there, and it's also one of my favorite places to visit. I mean, come on, can't beat that weather. Yeah, you can't. It's always, it's cold and gloomy right now, but um, it's about as bad as San Diego gets with this. Yeah, exactly. I miss it already. I haven't even been here a year and I miss it. <laughs> but, you know, San Diego Comic Fest, for those who have not heard of us, it is actually from the original founders of San Diego Comic Con. So it's meant to recreate a smaller, more intimate uh, atmosphere that you would uh you would have seen at the 1970s comic conventions where it's relaxed but still has all these great comic creators and nostalgia that you can just hang out with. not so much a nostalgia vibe but it's just um i mean i love san diego comic-con i go every single year but of course it's a it's a convention for 150,000 people and right. not everyone is always so comfortable with an event for 150,000 people sometimes it's nice to do just something with you know a small number of people so just like a couple thousand coming in and just being able to not have the hustle and bustle of you know trying to go up to your favorite comic book creator and then just only having time for an autograph or saying hi before they have to rush along to the next customer or just like and it's 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 kind of a it's kind of a bum deal but it's just you're always on the run in one of those bigger events and i mean it's a good problem to have because there's always so much cool stuff to do and I should say, you know, I always compliment San Diego Comic-Con because you are never bored for a single second there. No, no, no. There is always something to do. To not catch it all. But, for in a, but in a small and more intimate environment, you can take the time with these creators. One of the coolest things I love about San Diego Comic-Fest is you go into the atmosphere at first looking up to these special guests as heroes. By the end of the weekend, you just call them friend. Yeah, it definitely, 
that's one of the things I definitely enjoyed about San Diego Comic Fest when I went last year was the intimacy of it and the way it does kind of harken back to the way it used to be before San Diego Comic Con became this uh, gigantic conglomerate that runs the entire world and that you can't even use Comic Con without them suing you. So, uh, but it, it, it is that intimate little feel about it, but not just that, whereas in, like you said, San Diego Comic-Con has gotten so big. There's something for everybody. That's why I tell people all the time. It's not just about Comic-Cons, uh, uh, comic books and art. Uh, it's entertainment at large. Whereas in San Diego Comic Fest, man, this is comic books. This is artists. This is like... We do have, uh, you know, dedicated things, but we do stay true to the original central focus of comics, science fiction, and, and film. And for those who say that, oh, film, Hollywood has no presence at San Diego Comic-Con, I, I beg to differ. It's been there since the start. And yes. this year at San Diego Comic-Fest, we are celebrating the centennial of Ray Bradbury and Ray Harryhausen as our theme. Ooh. And we've brought along a lot of wonderful creators who actually would love to speak about their experience and their inspirations from Bradbury and Harryhausen because these guys were such prolific creators. Of course, we start off... Um, Leading on your strong foot, uh, Bill Sienkiewicz is our guest of honor this year. Excellent. Yes. Followed by J. Michael Straczynski as our science fiction guest of honor. Okay, so got a nice variety. Yeah, JMS, if you know from Babylon 5, The Amazing Spider-Man, Sense8, uh, he did that film Changeling. And I, I, personally, I loved what they did with Sense8 and was glad they gave us a wrap-up movie. Yeah. I... I can't say I've actually seen Sense8 because the thing is, I'm a big comic fan of JMS. I've actually never watched Babylon 5. I've never seen Sense8. And people are like, that's sacrilege. Those are such great shows. I haven't touched them, but you know, I love the stuff he did on Amazing Spider-Man, Midnight Nation, Rising Stars. And the generation before mine knows Straczynski doing his animation work on the real Ghostbusters, Jason the Road Warriors. He basically, yeah. he, he practically created half of He-Man universe back in the 80s too. Like, uh, the 80s cartoons I grew up with and loved, yeah. Yeah, so JMS got his start there before moving into science fiction television shows. So that's really cool there. And then um, also some other great guests coming on board. Wendy and Richard Peeney of ElfQuest will be joining us this year. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm very big. I don't know anyone who isn't a huge ElfQuest fan. It just sucks you down the hole, and it's just so, so addictive to see. And they're such nice, wonderful people, and I... I think it's, it's great to have them around. We've also got uh, artist Liam Sharp coming back to the show. Liam, who you might know from Green Lantern and Wonder Woman uh, runs recently, also Gears of War. He's done a lot of wonderful concept art. Strangely enough, he was actually even one of the concept arts artists for uh, the uh, Tim Burton uh, Superman film that- uh, Oh yeah, the, the, the one, yes. Uh, Superman Lives that never got made and if you haven't watched the documentary by Holly and Schnepp, I'll put the links in here. You yeah, it's an absolutely documentary. Don't go see it. Take a take a look at it. It's like you know what could have been. And I applaud uh, the late John Schnepp and Holly for putting in the effort to make that uh, DVD. And it's a, it was a wonderful documentary to see what could have been. It's like man, I could wish that was there. But you know, oh, yeah, that would have added so much more to the Superman canon in DC period that they could have went off in different directions for, but whatever, anyway. Yeah, and so other uh, great uh, great things that we get to celebrate at Comic Fest this year, uh, Mr. Marv Wolfman will be joining us this year. So we get to do a 
Teen Titans. And so I do want to play around with Marv and have some stuff. There's also a program I'm doing, uh, I want to do called Midlife Crisis, Crisis at a Crisis on Infinite Earths at 35, where <laughs> Marv back at, you know, 35 years ago, he did Crisis on Infinite Earth. 15 right. years ago, he came back to it with Jeff Johns to do Infinite Crisis, and just recently just wrapped up co-writing the Crisis on Infinite Earth TV series. Okay, I was, I was hoping to bring this up with you because, so he has the cameo where he's on the wharf and he's acting like a little fanboy getting their autographs. Now, there was like a little jab in there that I didn't quite understand because I'm not quite as nerd knowledgeable as you are. Was it something about the original lineup of the team versus who they were using now on the show? I don't know because I actually haven't seen it. Oh, damn it. <laughs> I can't say. Okay, okay. Well, what, you, get back there, to me once I, you've seen it. You know, you know, he co-wrote the episodes, but I mean, everyone is like, oh, look who's here. Oh, look who's here. It's like, and so I, I can't say because I haven't seen it just yet. Gotcha. So once you, once you watch with, them, uh, we'll do this again. Yeah, I did see him posing with the Flash and Supergirl. I'm like, haha, you guys died. And he killed you. <laughs> Wait, what? Well, also, and, and George Press killed him too, but yeah, in a spectacular fashion. Well, you know, George, George Perez gets in moods. Yeah. And uh, other, and moving on for other guests along the yes. way, we're bringing uh, another notable guest of comic book history, Miss Trixie Roth, who is the widow of the late Ed Roth, who created Rat Fink, Big Daddy Roth. Wow. So if you like hot rods and uh, crazy looking monsters driving them, uh, there is plenty to go around. And so you'll be seeing plenty of uh, hot rods and crazy custom cars coming around Comic Fest this year as the uh, traveling uh, Roth crew comes along here. So it's gonna be, a, it's gonna be a, a sight to see. Oh, that's cool. I always love his work. Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Rat Fink fan. And because I do want to uh, do things through in a comic book history tone, uh, last year, there was a fellow I met at uh, San Diego Comic Fest. He just came along randomly. And I don't get starstruck very often, but uh, there was a person who wanted to introduce me to this guy who had just come to the show randomly. His name was Mark Ditko. Mark Ditko. He is the nephew of the late, great Steve Ditko. Who did what and again? Steve Ditko, okay, for those who uh, may not be familiar, is the co-creator of Spider-Man. Aha! Yes. Steve Ditko, who did the first uh, 38 issues of Amazing Spider-Man, and then left the book to never touch Spider-Man ever again. Ditko was a great creator. While he was alive, I had no problem calling him the world's greatest living comic creator, but the man never gave interviews. There were very few photos of him, and even hard to find you know, recordings of his voice or anything. Anytime he had to make a public appearance somewhere to say even something like pick up a check from the comic book office, he'd be in, out, there, and just done. And so he just remained the most mysterious figure in all of comics. But after getting to know Mark, there's a side of Ditko that we never knew. And he has actually come a long way. And now Mark is the historical archivist of the Ditko archives and working to bring some of this uh, material to life with the, uh, alongside the Ditko, the Ditko estate. And just when you thought all this stuff was lost to the test of time, now it's here. And actually, Mark has said he does want to reveal some of these stories exclusively at San Diego Comic Fest. Ooh, amazing. Amazing. Pun intended. And, yeah, and so that's for the first time ever that we get to have this here. And it's just a really wonderful, uh, wonderful thing to see. Wow, that's cool. So, so that's something completely unique. And, and 
let, let me just plug plug San Diego uh, Comic Fest again. Like, if you are an introvert, because lots of nerds are introverts, that is a perfect show for you. Some of these smaller shows in a local area just might be just the right size for you, and this is one of those shows. Yeah, and so I do like uh, I do like what we get to uh, we get to bring to the table and have some great historical notes and a fresh guest list each time around. Though we do have our uh, fan favorites that we do like bringing back in. Um, say, for example, some of the guys that are always welcome at the show, uh, Mike Royer, who is the inker for Jack Kirby on uh, the Fourth World titles and did a lot of collaborations with Jack in the 70s, will be coming back to the show. Nice. Even though Mike, does, Mike says, everyone just calls me Jack Kirby's inker. Don't you know I was the lead Winnie the Pooh artist at Disney for 20 years? I'm like, yes, yeah. he has actually did a lot of uh, animation and uh, advertising work with Winnie the Pooh, so he's actually a wonderful, uh, wonderful... Uh, a wonderful guy to uh, get a Winnie the Pooh sketch from. So he's always oh, uh, awesome. at the bar drawing, drawing Winnie the Pooh and Igor on bar napkins. He's like, excuse me, Mish, I believe you dropped this. And, yeah, see, now that's what I'd be getting from him. Yeah. Give him and, his Pooh uh, credit. Yes. And also coming to the show, um, we have, uh, we're happy to bring back Disney Legend. He's an animator who's been working at uh, Walt Disney since 1959 when he first started working on... Sleeping Beauty, and he made history as the first black animator to work at uh, Walt Disney Studios, and he spent nearly a decade working with Walt Disney. Mr. Floyd Norman will be coming back to the show. So not a lot of guys out there who uh, who can say they worked with uh, with Walt Disney. So uh, don't miss the opportunity to meet Floyd Norman. He's a wonderful guy with great stories to tell. Yeah, I've met Floyd. He's cool. Yes. And then uh, other uh, animation guests on board, uh, Mr. Buzz Dixon, who wrote just about every 80s cartoon uh, imaginable. He wrote Transformers. He wrote, you know, Thundar the Barbarian. He, you know, G.I. Joe. He even did Strawberry Shortcake and My Little Pony for a while. So, like... Buzz, Buzz is... I love Buzz. He's smart. He's one of my favorite Facebook people to follow, too. And plus, he also has his own Instagram where he makes, like, funny, like, little memes based on, like, really old school, like, 1930s, like comic book art and stuff yeah he's he is a very clever very uh very great guy and i'm happy that uh, he is coming back for the show he's always welcome here and uh also other animation guests that i'm always happy to bring back because i just get to shoehorn my personal fanboy in mr john semper jr who for those who are uninitiated uh he's the creator of the spider-man animated series and he also got to work on fraggle rock and he is a prolific writer with a career that spans well over 40 years and some of the talent that he's worked with over the years it's just i mean i can i can bring this guy back every year for the rest of eternity and still not hear every fascinating story he has to tell of course i bring in for last year we did the 25th anniversary of the spider-man animated series but this guy's first official writing gig was working on 13 ghosts of scooby-doo with vincent price Ooh, man and then after classics. that he, uh, he got recruited uh, to work on a show called Fraggle Rock with this uh, this guy named Jim Henson, where he became the first black showrunner in animation history. I could hear Fraggle uh, Rock stories all day. Oh yeah, and uh, then because Fraggle Rock was produced by this uh, this company called uh, Marvel Animation Studios, he spent a lot of time working with this guy named Stan Lee. After he did uh, you know wonderful work there, he uh, got to uh, work with uh, this guy named George Lucas on some secret projects, and then. He also went on to uh, work with this fellow named Hayao Miyazaki, where John actually was the guy who wrote the English language translation for Kiki's Delivery Service. That's a very wow. fun fact. Yes, and so he has gone, he has this 
great repertoire working with these giants, these, I mean, gods of industry. And it's to hear him tell these stories about his time just hanging out with them and working with them. It's like, you work with Jan, you, you work with, you work with Vincent Price, you work with George Lucas, you work with Stan Lee, you work with Jim Henson and Hayao Miyazaki. These are legendary names, all of them. Yes. So it's always a great thing to, uh, to, bring, in, uh, to bring in John and hear his stories, and especially the ones about the Spider-Man animated series, you know, the world's greatest cartoon. Yeah, oh yeah, I was a big fan, big fan. And uh, other writers that we're bringing into the table, uh, Mr. Jim Kruger will be attending the show this year. He's made a very big splash with uh, the recent uh, Marvel's X, which is sort of a, I don't know if it's a sequel to Marvel's that Alex Ross did, and it's kind of a sequel to uh, Earth X. I don't know if the story's playing out. I kind of am seeing, but um, Jim Kruger has done, you know, he did the Earth X trilogy, which is phenomenal, which he collaborated with Alex Ross on. And he also did the uh, Justice series collaborating with Alex Ross. He collaborates with Alex Ross a lot. He's a very talented writer and he's very, very skilled, very nice guy. And I'm very happy to have him at the show. And of course, pick up Marvel's X right now. It just came out a couple weeks ago. It's very good. And also on the uh, more comic official side of things, even though it's like this guy's got some very official titles, He's still a big fan at heart. Mr. Chris Ryle, who is the president, editor-in-chief, and chief creative officer of, well, no, he's president, publisher, and chief creative officer of IDW Publishing. It's, he's such a wonderful guy. He is so awesome. He's so passionate about comics, and he always just brings so many great things to the table. And what he's done to you know, bring IDW to new heights and you know, bring out the best in, book, in stories like Lock and Key and Onyx and just like, colonized zombies versus robots he you know he writes comics he you know edits them he does all this stuff and there's no better guy suited for running idw than him and he is always welcome at our show yeah that's that's awesome and i love idw and they put out some great content yes and also on the uh you know cartooning side of things scott shaw a wonderful cartoonist who created uh captain carrot used to uh you know, storyboard Flintstones, uh, Fruity Pebbles commercials for nearly a decade. And he's, you know, pretty much the go-to guy for all Flintstones art. He's always one back at our show. He is absolutely, we're always happy to bring him on board. And uh, if we have any Wonder Woman fans, Miss Trina Robbins will be uh, coming on, on for the show. So, you know, she's a wonderful comics herstorian and one of the most prolific female underground comics of all time. She was the first woman to draw Wonder Woman and also her story, Women's Comics. And, you know, fun fact about her, she actually designed the outfit for Vampirella. She, she oh. And Vampirella, that's a fun fact of history that, uh, that, you know, a lot of people don't know about Trina. Cool. So, yeah, there is a lot of people coming on board for things, and I am just so absolutely amazed that uh, so many of these people are coming on board. And we have a uh, new announcement that just popped up today. We are bringing, uh, we're bringing in the legendary three tuners. So Mr. Tony Benedict, Jerry Eisenberg, and Willie Ito. Willie Ito, uh, if you know him from animation history, he animated the spaghetti scene from Lady and the Tramp. Oh. He also uh, did Hong Kong Fooey. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Jerry Eisenberg has worked on uh, Super Friends, Plastic Man, uh, Huckleberry Hound, Johnny Quest, uh, Space Ghost, like oh, like a bunch of those. Uh, oh, Ruby man. Stars. Johnny Quest and Space Ghost alone. Kids, get out there and watch that. Come on. And then uh, Tony Bendit, who used to be a 
writer for the Flintstones, for the Jetsons, for Top Cat, Miguel Gorilla. It's like he, uh, yeah, he he has a he he goes way back. And so don't miss out on these these legendary creators that were around the block at Hanna Barbera back in the day. Wow, that's all. See, that's my stuff. That's what I grew up with. That's that's all awesome. That's that's amazing. And so, what's the website where they can check out the upcoming events and the schedules? Okay, so uh, you can check out our main website at www.sdcomicfest.org, or you can just follow us on Facebook at San Diego Comic Fest. Uh, you can also check us out on Twitter at sdcomicfest and Instagram at sdcomicfest. So go online, check out the special guest list, check out some of the programming as it trickles in, and uh, go through. And uh, we want to, we aim to please to have a great show. In 2018, Forbes called us America's best small convention. In 2019, they called us America's best convention. Um, wasn't ready for that, but uh, now I have to be a tough act to follow. Right, yeah, you're competing with yourself at this point. Yeah. But I mean, I draw inspiration from a lot of great conventions over the years, like, you know, San Diego Comic-Con itself, Long Beach Comic-Con, Pasadena Comic-Con, Monster Palooza. I just try to take a little of the best from all these conventions and all these experiences that have been great. And I try to bring in the stories that, that people love, not just stuff that I love, but I know that people will love and bring out the best in the show. And I think it will be absolutely wonderful. I'm ready for the San Diego Comic-Test yet. And you know what? I think it will be too. Uh, Forbes is right. It is a wonderful show. I had a blast there and you guys will have a blast there too. So go check out the website, hit up the links. They're all down here in with all the other links in YouTube. Make sure you check out that show. Follow Matt Dunford too, because he's just funny. I'm just, a, I'm just a big dork. Yeah, but you're, you're, you're a creative smart dork. Like you're constantly educating me and I need that kind of education so before people find out I'm not a smart nerd like all the guests I have on my show. Hey, I'm not a nerd. Nerds are smart. <laughs> Whatever. All right, hey, thank you, Matt. We appreciate it. Uh, look forward to hearing more about upcoming guests for San Diego Comic Fest and hearing about how it was after the fact because we're going to be doing weekly episodes uh, all year, all year long for Down the Road Show. So okay, thanks for perfect. being here, brother. Thank you so much for having me on Down the Road. Thank you so much, Ken. All right, we'll see you down the road. Later. Yeah. Thank you to my guests, Douglas Adam Ferguson and Matt Dunford. Go follow both of them. Check out all the projects they're involved in. They're both great people, and I just love them to death. Uh, hopefully, we can have you both on the show again real soon. Thank all of you for staying tuned and coming back to this YouTube channel. We got more podcasts coming with more content, more interviews, and who knows what we may end up talking about in the near future. But meanwhile, subscribe, share, and thank you for being here. We'll see you guys somewhere down the road.